Welcome to Ed Talks, an audio podcast presented by Achieve Minneapolis and the Citizens League in partnership with young education professionals Twin Cities and Pollen. Ed Talks is a lively series of community conversations about public education and related issues that impact our young people. Each Ed Talks features two compelling short presentations by cutting edge educators, youth advocates, students, artists, or community leaders. Ed Talks is supported by generous grants from the Bush Foundation and the Vern C. Johnson Family Foundation. Our speakers include Bertrand Weber, Director of Nutrition and Culinary Services at Minneapolis Public Schools, with a talk entitled, Looking Through a Window at School Lunches, and Dr. Megan Gunner, Regents Professor and Director of the Institute of Child Development at the University of Minnesota, with a talk entitled, Early Experience and Brain Development, Why We're Starting Too Late. This event was recorded before a live audience at Ice House in Minneapolis on February 29, 2016. Good evening. So, Director of Culinary and Nutrition Services, I'm actually Minneapolis Public Schools Head Lunch Lady. That's really my real title. Um, I do have a PowerPoint, and I don't like PowerPoint, but to me, pictures really tell a thousand words. So, if you bear with me, it's not a PowerPoint presentation, but there will be some background. So a week ago today, I was actually in Washington, D.C. Uh, with the Pew Charitable Trust, and I went there to urge our lawmakers to pass the Child uh, Nutrition Reauthorization Bill. Right now, without it, we really can't conduct business because we don't know what the rules are. But that being said, uh, the Pew kind of was giving us some hints if we had some really tough questions from, the, from lawmakers. And one of the questions that they said we should be prepared for <laughs> is our politicians saying, why should we care about school food? I grew up in the 70s and 80s, and I turned out just fine. <laughs> and my answer to that would be, and did, how did that work for you? So, you grew up in the 70s. We are now 2015. <coughs> so, how did that work for you? Not so well. We're really in one of the worst crises that we've had uh, in a long time. CDC is stating right now that in the past three decades, uh, obesity has risen over 300% in, in in children and 360% in teens. Now you all know those statistics, but I think it's important that we keep them on the top of, of our knowledge because they really drive me why we're doing what we're doing. 30% of children are overweight, and to me what's even more scarier is, according to CDC, one of three children will develop diabetes before they graduate school, one in three. So when the lawmakers said, why should we regulate school lunch? This is one of the reasons. So just to put it in perspective, uh, we spend about $7 billion a year on school lunch around the country, and we spend $110 billion a year on fast food. We spend an average of six $1,000 to feed a child during K-12, and $175,000 on health care 
all due to illness related to uh, our diets. And we know that students who have chronic illness do not do well in schools. Undernourished students are also much more likely to become sick and miss school. Don't you love this little guy? So I thought that kids were really not born with a preference for any food. This picture would let you think differently, that they're born wanting that Dorito. Well, there's new scientific discipline called fetus origin that actually tells us that after seven months of gestation, their taste buds are fully formed and that children are born with a preference for food that is based on their mother's diet. So if you think about our diet in the past three to four generation, no wonder children have a craving for fast food and don't like fruits and vegetables. <clears throat> so one of the things that I think is important is society has treated kid as a market segment. They're a commodity. We market food for kids. There is no kid food. We created kid foods. Kids are not born wanting kid food, yet we created a whole market. So I would ask that we stop treating kids as commodities. They are not commodities. They are our children. They're the future of our generations. What kids know today is really incredibly due to the large exposure to marketing. Yale University did a study a while back, probably about 10 years ago, and I find, that, I find this one absolutely fascinating. Coca-Cola is the second most recognized world, word in the world. OK is number one, both from the US. McDonald is the second most recognized icon in the world. Santa Claus is the first. Kids can recognize over 1,700 branded food items. They have no clue how a tomato, a carrot grows, that chicken actually has bones in it. And put that in perspective. Yes, this is chicken. So when did chicken become a dinosaur? When did potato become a big smile? or we have chicken fries. This is kid food. So over the course of the years, over the course of you know, 40, 50, 60, 100 years, we've gone from eating whole food to processed food. Chicken has become dinosaurs. People stopped eating food made from food Cooking really became a luxury. There was, people used to cook. Now, the convenience of food came into the mainstream and kids are exposed to chicken looking like this. Schools are not the issue. Schools were just part of a transformation of our food system. Food School did not invite the chicken nugget. They just serve chicken nuggets. They're not the problem. They're part of what happened with our food system. Uh, 
They're not the culprit of the obesity crisis. They're not the problem with cardiovascular diseases. They're just part of our food system. But the key is schools can be an element of change. We have the ability to make a change. We're not part of the problem, but we can certainly be part of the solution. So here's an interesting fact. School lunch got started in 1946 as a it was a national security issue. After World War II, our kids were so malnourished that it was a security issue. Now, we have a security issue because half the recruits can't pass the army test. Completely the reverse. So, one of the challenges in school food, because after all, I'm here to talk to you about we did an MPS. So, staffing's a huge issue. Over the course of the year, as convenient food started gaining popularities, people with skills kind of left. And the only skill they needed to have, really, to be in a school to cook is a box cutter, because that's about all they needed. You open a box, you stick it on a sheet pan, you put it in the oven, you warmed it up. Budget. I have $3. $3 to buy the food, to pay my staff, to pay the overhead, the electricity, the custodial, the water, everything. Three bucks. You try to make a meal for three bucks. So my food cost is $1.20. With that, I have to serve milk, fresh fruits, fresh vegetable, protein, and grain. Regulations constant regulation from USDA. So the latest one that we have in the ultimate wisdom, we have to serve whole grain, which is wonderful. I think we should all eat whole grain. But instead of eating whole grain, manufacturers have re-engineered food. So now we serve whole grain donuts in schools. We have whole grain nuggets. We have whole grain everything. So that really hasn't solved the problem. What we haven't done is served intact whole grain because there's no regulation around that. It just says we have to serve, every grain has to be whole grain. So we stick whole grain breading on everything and we're good to go. Kids haven't learned, we haven't made a change. We have to serve fruits and vegetables, it's mandated. So now, juices count for a fruit and we put puree in a muffin so it counts for a fruit and we have all that. So regulations sometimes well meant are not the solution. And then we have student, student preference. Every day, every single day, I fight marketing. You watch a cooking show, and all they can say is, oh, you need more sodium on this. You need to bring some salt, some flavor. I have to drop my sodium on one side. I have to serve whole grain. All they get on the TV is just the opposite. So there's a direct conflict that we fight in school. There's no correlation between what we have to serve in school and what is served outside of school. So in 1975, Minneapolis Public School built a central kitchen. The purpose of the central kitchen was to bring fresh food to kids in Minneapolis because the schools didn't have kitchens. So they built the central kitchen, and it was going to be the future of all kitchens. This was really going to be the future of school food. 
By 2000, every piece of cooking equipment in that facility had been stripped and it became a repacking facility. It was a factory. So I remember the first week I was there, uh, I talked to some reporter and they referred to the nutrition center as where food goes to die, not where food, and it, she was pretty much right. I took my staff, walked down the stairs and said, what do you smell? Nothing. What do you see? Nothing. There was no food. It was all processed foods. The view from my window was like the Willy Wonka factory. A bunch of little people putting little food in little boxes with little plastic on top and we send it out to school. 42 elementary school, not a single kitchen. This, this dining room here, isn't that pleasant? That's the way we teach our kids how to eat. This is how much we care about our kids? Come on. This is food, this is really what we should be serving kids. This is how we teach kids to eat properly, to sit down, have a conversation, by giving them five containers wrapped in plastic. High school, wow. Bread, cheese, and little baggies of fruits and vegetables. That was it. That's four years ago. Why we didn't recognize, or when did we stop thinking that food had a direct correlation with health, behavior, learning ability? Administrators lost touch. This was a necessary evil. All of a sudden now, things have changed a little bit. I always refer to whenever there's testing in a district, they always go out of their way to serve breakfast on that day. But the other 172 days of the year, not so much. So, solution. Yes, we can. Break, break the mold. I believe in true food. I believe in food integrity. I believe that every child deserves access to quality food. Food made from food, food that comes from our region, food that's actually grown from the ground, that has less than 50 ingredients. I think it's important we understand that kids need more than books to learn. Hunger, insecurity, malnutrition, all contributes not to their success, but to hold them back. The objective of serving real food is really to help students achieve their full academic potentials. I have the biggest franchise in the Twin Cities. I have 72 restaurants. <laughs> I serve 6.1 million, million meals a year to 34,000 students. So for many kids, school meal is really the only meal that they have. 64% of our population live at, at or below poverty level. So I think it's a, it's, it's a moral obligation that we have as a society to take care of those kids. They deserve the best. And the only access to food that most of them has is a sea store or a gas station. So, what we've done, we've introduced salad bars in all of our schools, removed all the packaged, prepackaged. Our consumption, consumption, not purchase, but consumption of vegetable has doubled in two years. We're introducing our kids to local farmers. We have taste tests. 
So this is real turkey. This turkey comes from Cannon Fall, 35 miles from the Twin Cities. Those are real mashed potatoes, real butternut squash, and real kale. And guess what? Kids are eating it. Our revenue as a department has gone from $14 million to $21 million in four years. So whoever says kids don't like food is because they're not serving them real food. Real quality food is good. It's taken a long time for kids' taste bud to be where they are with processed food. It's going to take some time for us to get back to real food. And I'm just going to zip through some of those pictures because, again, I think they're worth a lot. But we now have a campaign the first Thursday of every month. 100% of what we serve to every kid in Minneapolis comes from Minnesota. So it's known as Minnesota Thursday. I now have seven high school, five middle school, 11 elementary schools with working kitchen, and we're building five to six a year. This is the food truck at Dowling a few years ago. <laughs> this is our food truck now. We've partnered. We are such a great foodie city. We're an unpretentious foodie city. So let's partner with the food community. I have 25 restaurants on the True Food Chef Councils that are help us develop recipes. This is from Brasa. It's their curry chicken bowl. And yes, I do it for under $1.20, and they sell theirs for 9 bucks. <laughs> and kids are loving it. Be enjoying some butternut squash. This is Ray. She grows four fields, two fields of potatoes and two fields of butternut squash just for Minneapolis kids. This gentleman is in Wisconsin, so we use him on Minnesota Thursday, but he's a great guy. <laughs> and we got connected with him because he was delivering tomatoes to local restaurant and he got hail damage, a field of tomato and a field of kale that he couldn't sell to anybody. We sent volunteered and we harvested all the kale and all the tomatoes and we served a wonderful holy kale salad and salsa, both organic product to all of our kids. He won, our kids won, and we won. This is John, this is the turkey, the turkey guy, all of our turkeys, turkey burgers, turkey hot dogs come 30 miles south of the Twin Cities. He has no market for dark meat. Every co-op wants the white meat. My kids don't care. So now he wins, I win, the kids win. It takes thinking differently. You have to think outside of the norm. Northfield, this farmer is, is a <coughs> registered organic farmer, but he acquired some land. And as he was transitioning, he had two choices either put cover crop or put cover crop. So he asked us, he says, would you mind if I grew carrots on this transition land? So he's growing organic or he's growing carrots following organic practice while he's transitioning. So now he has a guaranteed income for the next four years while he transition. My kids have organic carrots. He wins, we win, the kids win. 
but it takes thinking differently. You cannot operate a school district thinking as a school. You cannot just use your broadline distributor. You have to make connection. You've got to connect with your local community. Either we're done. Chef Council, last year we teamed up with Five Chef for a junior iron chef. Uh, here were the winners, and we featured it on our menu. Every kid uh, within the district was served a turkey chili that was made from our students. This year we have six chefs that are going to join us, uh, and then next year we're actually going to compete with St. Paul. And none of this, none of it, can be done without reaching to your local community. We have the expression, it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a community to change a food system. And without great community partner, there was no way I could have done this. And that's the reason why we're doing it. Thank you. It's really wonderful to be invited to do this talk tonight and to have all of you here. We are here, of course, let's make sure this works that way, because as you demonstrated when you clapped uproariously with the idea that we're here to improve the lives of children, we're here because we're concerned citizens. We care about having a strong community. We care about the economic future of our country. And I assume that we all believe that the foundation of that is in healthy child development. Healthy child development forms the pillars for, economic, or for educational attainment, necessary, of course, to be able to have that, to have economic productivity, to have responsible citizens, to have lifelong health, as we're beginning to really understand that link between early development and lifelong health, and to have people who are able to go on and successfully raise the next generation. This is the foundation for the economic success and the moral success of our communities. And we're all here because we care about that. Healthy child development depends on healthy brain development. Whoops. There we go. The healthy development of brain architecture. And that's what we're going to talk a bit about tonight. What we, begin to under, what we have come to understand forms the basis for the healthy development of brain architecture for our children. Now, the healthy development of brain architecture, it's nice to have a good set of healthy genes. But healthy genes alone will not get you healthy brain development. Genes are critically important. Genes help determine when parts of the brain develop, where particular kinds of neurons go, how we set up the very basic structure of the human brain. But the brain develops, well, the brain becomes what the brain thinks about. It's an amazing process. The way nature has set us up, this is a cartoon of neurons. This is not exactly what neurons look like, but it's to give you a sense. And what you're seeing there, imagine the little light there are the electrical impulses traveling from one neuron to the next. To send a signal and have anything happen, neurons have to connect with other neurons. And you can see that there in these little, excuse me, I'm not sure you can see it at all. That doesn't, well, there it is connections 
between the neurons. That's a synapse. That's to indicate a synapse. And at a certain point in development, our brain suddenly has thousands and thousands and thousands of these connections, more than we actually need to think efficiently. What the brain does then is as it processes information, the places where information is flowing and being effective, those synapses get bigger, they connect. And the places that are not transmitting information, they begin to unhook and retract. And it's the coolest thing in the world, right? This is how we have evolved to develop brains that work in the context of our lives, that help us understand what to do if we live in Alaska on the steps or the ice out there and what to do if we live in the rainforest. We have a way of adapting our brains to our context. But what it does mean is that the brain becomes what the brain thinks about. This, over, this proliferation of connections and pruning doesn't happen at the same time throughout your brain. It begins in the back part of your brain with the basic perceptual systems. This is what babies are working on in the first months of their lives. They're getting those set up correctly by looking and hearing and so on. And then it proceeds to motor and emotional areas and later on to the more complex memory, emotion, and learning. You think, of course, with your whole brain. It's very rare that you ever use one part of your brain for any problem. And with development, what you're getting is these wonderful connections occurring, getting strengthened, circuits developing, so that the brain processes information efficiently and well, so that you develop a sturdy brain architecture. And you have to wonder what nature was, oh, uh, sorry, and it's like building a foundation to a house. You need a firm foundation to develop a beautiful house above that. If the foundation is not firm, it's really hard to go back and fix that. The house on top will be wobbly, it will be influenced. With that information, you do have to wonder what nature was thinking. The most complex brain on the planet that requires the longest development, that needs information, is put inside of a creature that cannot get its hand to its mouth, lift its head off of the, the pillow, roll over, reach for anything, crawl to anything for months. With, by itself, the child cannot do what is needed to form healthy brain architecture. We really have to wonder what nature was thinking. Well, what nature was thinking is that we evolved to develop that healthy brain architecture in the context of relationships. And in the context of responsive relationships, well, babies run entire households. <laughs> the child reaches out. As this, whoops, as this baby is, the adult responds. The baby gets excited, the adult responds. We call this interaction or serve and return or call and response. But the whole process is one where the child's brain sends signals. They result in a behavior. A positive thing happens. That confirms back to the brain, hey, that was a good thing. Feed those sorts of synapses. That one worked. And in that process, you sculpt a very healthy set of brain architecture. Now, we know that all you have to have is one 
responsive, caring adult in the life of a child. But we also know that raising children is really challenging and it's hard if you are the one responsive adult in that child's life to keep doing 24-7 what that child needs. Well, typically children are born into the context of many relationships that are all important. Grandparents, um, pa both parents, um, oftentimes, or at least to adults, uh, teachers, other children, in a rich set of relationships where there's interesting things to do and the child is supportive, we have the context for developing a healthy brain. It is rocket science, but it's just basically what all kids need and what, as a society, we should be able to ma help make sure, ensure that all children have. Okay. However, we have many families who are under a lot of stress. We have many families where there are not a lot of adults who are there to be able to be supportive. We have many families who are really challenged by the income inequality that we are confronted. Everything is not perfect. So it should not come as a surprise to you that some of the barriers to educational attainment, and I was really asked to talk about whether age four is early enough. <laughs> and my talk is, no, it's not. That doesn't mean we stop. <laughs> we, yay, we got to go earlier, but we can't drop them at age four either. <laughs> so why is it too late? This graph is an old study. It's been, however, repeated with fancy-dancy stuff and eye tracking and everything. So we know it really is telling a true story. It's going to, this graph will show you on the far, uh, is what it's counted is the number of words children know. Now, words are nice. We are getting to the habit now. We've been thinking about this of just throwing loads of words at kids. Yeah, may not be the right thing. Because words are labels for con concepts. And I don't know if you remember a time like this. I remember being five. Maybe I was already a psychologist. But I had, <laughs> I had learned a word. And I'm walking home, running my finger along the wall of the, on the retaining wall next to my house, because I really vividly remember this memory, thinking, wow, I learned that word. And now everybody's saying it. And then it struck me, maybe they'd been saying it all along, but because I didn't know the word, I didn't have the concept, I wasn't hearing it. And that's the thing about language. It opens up a world of concepts to you. So we say skill begets skill, right? Learning language opens doors to learning more stuff. So it's not just knowing the words, it's the fact that these words are opening, opening the doors. And what this study showed us, and it was done by social class, was, and that is only a correlate, right? Not everybody who is poor is not speaking a lot with their kids. But if we count the number of words that children are speaking up to 16 months, there's not much of a difference, thank you. But by 36 months, that's our achievement gap. So by age three, we are seeing the achievement gap in language. And that also means in concepts, and that means what kids come to school ready to learn more. We now know that it also parallels what we see if we look at brain development. So if you love Hercule Perrault, you know he talks about those little gray cells. That's what they were looking at here, was the volume of the gray matter in the brain. They, they were following the same kids, 
And at five months, there's no difference by social class. By three years, there is. That matches what I told you. The brain becomes what the brain thinks about it. The brain can think about more stuff. It forms more connections, etc. It is not over at age three. That is not what those kids' brains will necessarily be an adult. But it means they walk into school with fewer connections, fewer words, and they're playing catch-up as early as age two, actually. So now the question becomes, um, not only what the brain needs, but what the brain doesn't need. And I'm gonna switch here to stress. This is a picture of your adrenal glands. These are these little hats that sit on top of your kidneys. They produce adrenaline and cortisol, two major stress hormones. The brain needs, uh, th this helps us stay alive, by the way, guys. You don't wanna take your adrenal glands out. Really a bad plan, okay. <laughs> And before I go into the stress part, I want to make sure you understand that we do not want to wrap our children in bubble wrap. That actually, like many things in physiology, that, which I call the Goldilocks principle, typically too little, too much, not good. Some degree of stress is actually facilitates brain development. So it's good to let your kids get frustrated, try hard, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and had maybe have a few days of distress when you leave them at childcare. This is all good. Okay, the issue we worry about is when you get stress hormones produced at high levels for long periods of time. That's what we call toxic stress, and it can be damaging to the brain. What you're seeing, excuse me, what you're seeing on the left is a brain cell, all those nice little connections. On the right is the, the researchers dumped stress hormone on that brain cell and the, it retracted a lot of its connection possibilities. Yeah. Actually, that's a cell from the reasoning part of the brain, the place the hippocampus or the prefrontal cortex. In the emotion centers of the brain where you learn fear, the reverse happens. The more stress hormone, the larger the connections. So basically what the brain is doing, it, nature doesn't hate us. But if the world is dangerous, our brain is adapting to become a think now, or act now, think later brain to keep us alive. It makes it hard to go to school, though. So that's what it's doing, is helping to shift the energy away from the learning parts of your brain. And as we know from trauma-informed education, needing to create an extra safe environment for these kids so they don't kick out of the learning mode and into the fear mode. Okay. So how do we act on this? Our evidence is pretty clear that the plasticity of the brain decreases as these circuits form, et cetera, and, excuse me, what it takes to change the brain increases. Not that we can't do it. There is no kid we ever give up on, but it's going to take more time and effort. So as a society, it makes sense that we do some careful planning to make sure that during this time when the brain can get up, set up beautifully, that we're making sure that as a society we are supporting the kids and their families so that that will happen. How do we do that? Well, there is no silver bullet. And this is the thing that worries one as a scientist, that when we think about policy discussions, and we totally understand why we think this way, everyone is looking for should we do this or that? If we only have so much money, should we do this or that? I want to argue that as a society, we need a good 10-year plan 
or a 15-year plan that's comprehensive, where we work together and figure out what we need to do as a society to feed our children the right way. That's absolutely essential for healthy brain development. And to worry about young families, make sure they're supported. It is hard work parenting. If you were not parented well, it is especially difficult. I don't know about you, but when I had little kids, and I know what you're supposed to do, I could watch myself on bad nights going, whoops, you goofed there, whoops, that was bad, woo, you got three wrong. Uh, you know, good thing kids are sort of forgiving. Uh, if I were living a more highly stressful life, if I didn't know where the next, whether I could pay for the rent, if I didn't know where the next meal was coming from, I don't, I, I, I don't think my kids would have lived through that, um, let alone done well. So we need to support families so they can support their kids. We need, families have to go to work. And in our most high-risk families, they may hold two or three jobs. They need safe childcare and good childcare for their children. Where kids have a chance to learn exciting stuff. I get upset when I hear about kids this age being talked about as students. I know we need the education system to take care of them, but these are kids whose primary need, they, they'll, they need to learn, but their primary need is to feel safe and secure with people that they are attached to, emotionally secure with. That is the primary job of a teacher of very young children. The rest follows with a good curriculum and so on, but we, we got to start with a different attitude towards our youngest guys. Right? And that means that we need to really support the people who are working with them. They have a tremendously big job. Not only do they have to be the secure base for these kids, they also have to, have you ever thought of having a party for a two-year-old and have the kids come and stay all day and there are 12 of them or some god number? <laughs> it is really hard. And it takes... And I don't know if you've noticed, but little kids, you don't say, we're going to learn numbers now, and they all sit down and say, OK. <laughs> so you have to be an amazing analytic processor, because you take the kids where they are, you notice an opportunity, and you, you support the learning that the child's doing. I've often thought if I wasn't doing what I was doing, the most difficult other job that would be exciting and analytic would be to be a preschool, nursery school teacher, because it's a, you've got to be really smart, and you've got to think on your feet. And we don't pay many of these people more than we pay the people who are at doggy daycare, nor do we provide the training for them. In fact, and this is a wonderful report um, that just came out last year, Worthy work, still unlivable pay. During the period of most rapid brain development, we pay the people who work with our kids the absolute least. Many of these people cannot get by without being on food stamps. This is a sin. And if we decide that we're going to do preschool for four-year-olds, we need the right curriculum, and we need teachers trained to teach four-year-olds. Kindergarten should not be the new second grade 
preschool should not be. So we got to get rid of the worksheets and so on. And again, we need exciting curricula that engage children and teachers who know how to create that curricula and use it to teach the ABCs, to teach words and learning and all the things that you absolutely can do in that context in playful learning. And it's not done when they're six. We cannot expect to do great things for young children and then dump them into a school system that doesn't do for them, that we don't provide enough funds to do for them what they need. The last time I checked, well, it's not done till they move out, which could be ages. <laughs> but if we work together, we can think of a comprehensive set of plans across the community to work over the years to create ultimately the kind of context we want for our communities, for the families and children there, so that we will all have a bright future. Thank you. Ed Talks is presented by Achieve Minneapolis and the Citizens League in partnership with Young Education Professionals Twin Cities and Pollen. Thanks to our generous sponsors, the Bush Foundation and the Vern C. Johnson Family Foundation. For more information on Ed Talks or to watch Ed Talks videos, please visit achievempls.org slash edtalksmn.